light the fire You place the flowers in the vase that you bought today Staring at the fire for hours and hours while I listen to Your summer's been awesome. I'm Tyler Lyle. This is episode nine of The Secret Layer. G.K. Chesterton talks about control by way of the chess player and the poet. He says, the chess player wants to condense everything into his tiny head, and the poet wants to simply put his tiny head in the middle of the great big everything. The chess player's mind can't fit everything in, and so it cracks. But the poet, who is unconcerned with possessing everything, gets to be happy out in the stars. I say this to say that I've chosen a very broad theme for this month. Home. If you want a career in the Americana genre today, writing about home is a safe place to start. I'm going to try and resist my urge to be the chess player and to get all systematic about it. Because by now, if you've made it this far, you know that that's my tendency. The reason I wanted to dive into this topic, especially on a month that has been so full of travel, is because my wife and I moved apartments, and there's something about moving day that inspires all sorts of feelings about the passage of time and new possibilities. My last place, um, a high-rise in downtown Brooklyn, was pretty and new, but it didn't feel like home. It certainly didn't feel like a neighborhood. Now I think I have a shot at a new beginning in a a one-and-a-half bedroom in Park Slope, and I want it to feel different. I want it to feel like home. The Danes have a word called huga, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but uh, it's translated as coziness. Johnny Cash, when asked what he thought heaven was like, said, this morning, having coffee with her. That's huga. The uh, U.S. ambassador to Denmark says, the way I define Huga to Americans is Thanksgiving. You're with your family and your friends, and you're eating delicious food, and there's tradition associated with it. It's kind of an emotional happiness, an emotional coziness. Connection, warmth, beauty in the moment shared with others. Um, Perhaps this philosophy of coziness is meant as a buffer uh, for the Danes against the long winters. Perhaps it's why they're also consistently polled as the happiest people on earth. I want to talk about Huguet today, uh, coziness, openness. Um, And I want to sort of discuss how to cultivate this feeling um, in my new space. So we'll take it in three parts, at home in your skin, at home in your house, and at home with others. And as I start this new journey in a new space, I want to take some preemptive steps towards coziness. I wonder if this coziness has to do with transparency, openness, taking a few feet from the privacy fence. See, now when I open my curtains, I not only get to see the street and the people on it, but the people on the street get to see me as well. Perhaps in that reciprocal relationship, there's something to be learned about lowering your guard. 
Anyway, thanks for joining me. Today should be a lot of fun. Part one, uh, being comfortable, being at home, being cozy in your skin. It's the first requirement of home. Without that, it doesn't really matter what color the curtains are. There is a mind-body dualism problem that we have inherited in this Western world. And like most home renovation shows, the first day is demo day. I think this is where the demolition should start. Rene Descartes, the founder of modern philosophy, was a restless 20-something in the early 1600s. He dreamt of a complete philosophy that would explain the connectedness between everything. But when he looked at the world, he saw division. His idea was to break down big concepts into smaller, more basic component parts. So music is broken down into math. Uh, Astronomy becomes physics. I remember when I was a precocious child asking my parents why we had to wait for the peaches to be ripe and them explaining that fruit is supposed to be sweet and me asking, yeah, but why? And them explaining fertilization and me asking, yeah, but why? And them explaining the propagation of the species and me asking, but why? And at a certain point, all the but whys ended with because God said so. And but why... The answer is because God said so. Uh, The point is, uh, for our discussion, that geometry may be understood through physics, but physics has to be understood through something uh, deeper and murkier if you keep asking the but why questions. You have to get to the metaphysics to ground your studies of medicine or alchemy or algebra. It's like this Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where Calvin raises his hand in class and asks the teacher... Given that sooner or later we're all just going to die, what is the point of learning about integers? Her answer was to turn to page 83. If Descartes, like Calvin, wanted to answer equations, he needed to ground his math in a philosophy of being for it to matter. If fundamental assumptions about reality and knowledge are off, then everything else is off, too. So far, so good. In his meditations, he introduces the idea that radical doubt could be used as a tool for self-exploration. He starts to think, my senses are sometimes flawed. Perhaps there's reason to doubt them. For example, things look smaller if they're farther away. Light reflects and the stick in the water looks like it's bending. Sometimes I don't know when I'm dreaming and when I'm awake. From here, he recognizes that our sensory perceptions can't ultimately be trusted. So he runs with it. He supposes that what he sees does not exist, that his memory is faulty, that he has no senses and no body, that extension, movement, place are mistaken notions. Perhaps, he remarks, the only certain thing remaining is that there is no certainty. But then he has a truly radical thought. Even if the physical world doesn't exist, to have doubts about it, he must exist. There must be an I that can doubt to be deceived or misled by some evil force. At the bottom of everything, even if nothing else exists, there is still the I questioning it. 
At very least, the eye, because the thought would be impossible otherwise. So after considering everything thoroughly, he writes, I must finally conclude that this proposition, I am, I exist, is necessarily true whenever it is put forward by me or conceived in my mind. So I am, I exist, as long as I am thinking. Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I exist. This is the beginning of the last 500 years of Western thought. And so far, this is great metaphysical detective work. He's the first person in history, if not to have this thought, then at least to publish it. This starts his grounding. But the rest, the body, the senses, they get lost. Descartes thinks it's self-evident that all knowledge either comes from our senses or our reason. These are two different things for him. The cogito, the knowledge that I exist, um, comes from reason. So does math and science and optics. Um, If only he would have stopped there, though, the Western world might have been saved, but he didn't. Descartes, stuck in the mind and unable to move forward with his systematic vision, posits that there must be a loving God who is self-evident to all who doesn't want to deceive us. So I guess... You can trust your senses after all, but only under scrutiny, which uh, is a cop-out, whether you believe in a self-evident loving God or not. Um, It's a cop-out. To be fair, this was around the time Galileo was forced to renounce his idea that the earth orbited around the sun by the Catholic Church, who was very much at odds with the science of the day. And Descartes was also under the scrutiny of their very long gaze. But his inability or unwillingness to really rescue the senses and the body that experienced them uh, in the way that he rescued the mind and knowledge means that we've inherited a mind disconnected from a body. This is called dualism. It's the way most of us think about our minds and our bodies. Humanities professors are unlikely to be weightlifters in the same way that weightlifters are unlikely to be humanities professors eggheads, and jocks. That's implanted early. I got in trouble with the principal at a mandatory pep rally in my high school because I was reading a book and not participating. Now when people talk about sports, my eyes glaze over, and of course they do, because the history of Western thought arbitrarily draws this line and reinforces it so well. The problem is, is it's not true. The body is a whole organism, so interconnected with itself that disentangling it is impossible. Descartes had no idea about neurochemicals in the brain. Descartes thought that only humans had souls and therefore felt pain, so he went around kicking dogs and laughing at how they seemed like they were in pain. But his science had proven that that was impossible. And this is the man we're trusting our ideas to. I decided it would be a fun experiment to test out the mind-body dualism for an hour. I decided to go to a sensory deprivation tank in Brooklyn to test out what 60 minutes without a body feels like. Sensory deprivation tanks were popularized in the original studies of the effects of psychedelic drugs in the 50s and 60s. The kind of tank I went into was a flotation tank, which consists of a solution of water and salt the same temperature as the outside of your skin that allows a person to be really buoyant in the water with all the salt. 
Wikipedia says, which I didn't read beforehand, um, for the first 40 minutes, it is reportedly possible to experience itching in various parts of the body, a phenomenon also reported to be common during the early stages of meditation. The last 20 minutes in the tank often end with a transition from beta or alpha brainwaves to theta, which typically occur before sleep and again at waking. In a floating tank, the theta state can last for several minutes without the subject losing consciousness. Some use the extended theta state as a tool for enhanced creativity and problem solving. Spas sometimes provide commercial flotation tanks for use in relaxation. Flotation therapy has uh, been academically studied in the U.S. and Sweden with published results showing reductions in pain and stress. The relaxed state also involves lower blood pressure and maximal blood flow. I wish I would have read that before going in so that I would know what to expect. Uh, But I went into Lyft, uh, which is on Court Street in Brooklyn. It's on the second story above a bar that I've definitely been to. Um, When I arrived, I was shown to my float pod in a private room. I undressed and entered the warm water. Soon the lights were off, the earplugs were in, the pod lid was closed, and only one of my five senses was still available, which was smell, and there was nothing interesting in that department. Um, I know this from meditating, but the brain's typical mode is to flood us with pictures and emotions and worries and memories like fast-moving clouds across the sky. This is why most meditation focuses on breathing. If you can have an anchor in the body to return to, the inhale and the exhale of the breath, then you can return and simply let these clouds pass without becoming invested or distracted by them. If you return back to the breath enough times to this anchor, the mind starts to reduce the flood of images until distractions cease, and ideally your brain slows down. Do this enough times and it becomes easier to enter into the theta brainwave where the feelings of rest and connection and awareness come from. So I sat naked in the tank, at some points on the verge of feeling very relaxed, but mostly at the edge of extreme anxiety. I tried to focus on breathing. My limbs kept wanting to move. My mind refused to be quiet. Trying to cut off the mind from the body for me was the experience of the body refusing to go. Even now, sitting back at my apartment, I'm paying attention to how much I'm fidgeting, shifting positions, scratching itches, shuffling my feet. And this makes sense because we know that the mind and the body are connected. We know that what we eat, how active we are, how much sleep we get, all determines what the mind feels like. Our interior states are determined by our exterior states. The question, are you a body that has a soul or a soul that has a body? These are both wrong questions. We are the same thing. The two sides of the coin are the same side. Um, Putting the body to rest like in a flotation tank, for me, was only further proof that both my mind and body are connected in their restlessness. So the first step home, the integration of the self. For me, that means that after a month of travel and a month of eating lots of delicious fatty food and drinking good beer and feeling like shit because of it, It means lacing up my running shoes and jogging through Prospect Park. It means cooking veggies at home. It means a good night's sleep. It means after planes and trains and automobiles, six states and three time zones, to take special care to sit alone, fully embodied, by myself, not rushed, not anxious, until my thoughts become clear 
and present again. The running and the sitting will commence as soon as I finish this episode, by the way. So I close my eyes and let the memories take me home to a time in my life to a place that's long been gone. There's no way to get there by train or by car, but I know the way back home by heart. That's a song my dad wrote. Part two, a home needs a house. Three, three and a half years ago, I got laid off from a job. I didn't know what I was doing, and a friend of mine asked if I wanted to sell my stuff at this antique store, and so I tried it out part-time, and it went really well, and this was just stuff that I accumulated over the years that I wanted to get rid of, so I tried it. And so one thing went to another and just sort of moved my shop around until I finally landed at this place called Westside Provisions where I am currently at now. And things just kind of grew from there. So I have a vintage store and then I do uh, interior design as well. That's my friend David Kowalski. He runs a company called Brick and Mortar out of Atlanta. When we found our new apartment in Brooklyn, I saw a dedicated space for my office, something I've never had before. I had visions of club chairs and mahogany bookshelves with broad-leafed houseplants hanging from the ceiling. I saw what every child sees in a blanket fort or a backyard treehouse. I saw a place of my own. It seems to me that when I leave city centers and people tend to have larger houses, they like to express their identity through the kind of car they drive or how they take care of their yard or their man cave or their kitchen. In New York, no one has any space. That's why it seems that here people's expression of identity mainly comes from what they're wearing or the book they're carrying or what kind of music they're listening to. What I like most about creative spaces is that it allows uh, the person whose space it is to externalize their creativity, to move the boundary from their mind from the brain to the room, makes the body become a porous boundary. It's not inside or outside, but both. The creative machine grows from 2.69 square feet, which I learned is the size of my brain stretched out, to approximately 150 square feet, the size of the space that I'm now talking to you from. I sought out books to see what other creative people did with their space. I saw Nico Case's beautiful farmhouse, Le Cubassier's hut in southern France, Virginia Woolf's riding lodge in East Sussex. Still, my favorite story about interesting people who created a place of their own is Michel de Montaigne, who served as a mayor of Bordeaux twice when he was in his mid-30s. He retired to his family estate and built himself a tower. He kept a bed, a fireplace, an altar, a toilet... And at the top, a glorious library with a commanding view of the surroundings. There he would pace around with a book or pen in hand and write his thoughts or simply think them. This is how the genre, the essay, was created. This was Montaigne's invention. But it's all the same space, right? It's where Nico Case would craft melodies, Le Corbusier would draft architecture, uh, Virginia Woolf would character map uh, Michel de Montaigne would wonder out loud what his cat was thinking. I wanted 
this kind of space. I wanted my space to create. I wanted it to be cozy and functional and quirky and mine. I think a space, especially a creative space, should serve to be a representation of your values and remind you of those values. I don't know where this impulse initially came from, call it turning 30, but I do know that it was fed by HGTV. My wife and I don't have cable, but when we're in a hotel or visiting family, we will binge HGTV like crazy people. I think it has to do with living in cramped quarters in a city of cramped quarters, dreaming of a big yard with new appliances and a big comfy leather chair with a small garden to the side has taken the place in my mind that used to be reserved for thoughts of new music or good dive bars or video games. I mean, I know it's a lie. I know Epicurus says that it's better to have a congenial companion than a well-decorated villa, but I have my congenial companion. Is it wrong of me to dream of my well-decorated villa too? Caring a lot about the design and decoration of our houses can seem both materialistic and self-indulgent. But this series argues that the dilemmas of the ordinary homeowner straddle a range of the most profound questions of the branch of philosophy known as aesthetics. The choices we make about the shape of the windows or the color of the walls matter because we are, for better and for worse, different people in the different places we inhabit. Um, you seem to gravitate towards like older objects that have wear and that like have a bit of age on them. Why do you think you like, uh, why do you think you like older stuff? Uh, I think it just gives them a, a story. Uh, like I'm, I'm sitting here in my living room looking at a radio and I know that, you know, my dad played with that as a kid. And so I know that like everything has where has a story to it that you know it it used to live in another home and had a family and you know has seen a ton of things and that's just something that I really really appreciate about um my job is that I'm able to sort of continue the story of pieces that are sort of discarded from homes for whatever reason it seems like there is a trend in design that is um you kind of want to like pay for this pretty picture, but it doesn't seem to kind of have like the gravity that you're talking about. That like it has um, the objects tell a story. Fact of the matter is, you you need a couch, and you're probably not going to find a couch that you know your great grandparents had, or you know something like that. It's just right. it's just not easily accessible. And so if you get you know a good couch from IKEA, and then you know, have a, a coffee table that is your grandmother's or, you know, have a rug that you found at a flea market. Like, I think when you're able to sort of mix those things, it people can tell when it's, when it's sort of well thought out. What does your own private creative space look like? Do you have an office? And, like, what do you keep in your office? I did recently turn one of my bedrooms into a den that I work out of a lot. Uh -huh. And so that was the first room that I actually put a lot of thought into what I did into that room. And um, 
it's more of like a library kind of feel, Florida ceiling bookshelves and uh, put a chair in there that I've been wanting for about 10 years and um, was just really careful about what I'd put into that space. I didn't want to put anything that didn't feel like it fit in there. Right. But I hope, I hope that all of the spaces in my home are somewhat thought out, right. and I think they are. After three weeks of being here in Park Slope, the end result is a nice apartment. I've only had seven or eight days total in New York since then, but our bedroom is sparse, the kitchen's okay. Our living room is beautiful with a green fireplace hearth from the 20s. We have a few pieces of deco furniture and old books and plants that help bring the space together. In my office, which I'm dubbing the secret lair, I have a large plant in the corner, my old orange desk beside it, a new orange secretary that hides all of my music stuff to keep down on the clutter when I'm not recording. I have shelves of built-in books on the wall, a five-instrument stand to keep my guitars and banjos. There's a painting of Amicalola Falls in North Georgia on the wall and a comfortable Ikea chair with an ottoman by a cheap floor lamp for reading. No Nagahide, no club chairs, no spiral staircases, grand pianos, or skylights. No commanding view of the countryside or the Pacific Ocean. It's far more like a monk's cell here than Versailles, but it's perfect because it's mine. On my desk, I have a little log cabin incense holder, a picture of my wife, a bottle of Elmer T. Lee bourbon, and a coin that says, this too shall pass. It feels cozy. I imagine myself in this space through the long winter, filling my hours with big books and watching recording tutorials and writing songs. Huga. That's what I'm aiming for, coziness, a home and a space. I will note that I did tell David that the next nice leather chair he finds I'm calling dibs, though. Part three, sharing is caring. The last component of home is other people. I love my wife and our weekends together are epic. This apartment feels like home because I get to share it with her. It is ours. But that's not quite what I mean. You might remember my reference last month to a book called All Things Shining by Richard Dreyfuss and Sean Kelly. They have a chapter that dissects two forms of happiness. One is bliss, one is joy. Bliss is embodied by Dante's character in the Divine Comedy. Bliss is rapture, ecstasy, religious, sexual, or narcotic. Bliss is always constrained to the individual. Joy, on the other hand, is akin to this concept of huga. It is shared. It's cozy. If bliss is a vertical pleasure, then joy is a horizontal pleasure. Bliss is many people's end game. It's a poorer ideal of happiness, in my opinion, but it's in the hardwiring of the platonic ideal, the American dream, the marketing budget for Coca-Cola, and the foundation of the prosperity gospel. It's what Dante, as in Inferno, gets at the end of the Divine Comedy. It's what he's been seeking from his quest, and it's the fruit that he enjoys at the end of it. He climbs the mountain after his long journey and is led to achieve a beatific vision of God. His romantic love interest, Beatrice, fades away along with the rest of the material world into Dante's ecstatic and direct contemplation of God. Dante says, experiencing that radiance, it is impossible to think of ever turning from it. This is bliss. 
He can never return to work in the world with any sense of vigor anymore. The world stops mattering. It becomes trivial compared to what is, quote, ultimately important. He spends the rest of his days pining to return to his creator. This is a mode I learned to emulate early on in my high school days at the Baptist church. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace, goes the hymn I grew up singing. But is this really the way to a fulfilled existence, asks all things shining authors. It seems more like a way to avoid a meaningful life rather than the way to attain one. Indeed, it may be a medieval form of nihilism, for it says that there is nothing in this life that has any meaning whatsoever. Even Beatrice's saving love or Dante's deep political motivations are trivial when compared with the love of God. What Dante is envisioning is some sort of metaphysical dualism, the spiritual being at odds with the material. The flesh is sinful. Life is a waiting room for an undefined spiritual life. Here, art, education, human interaction all become either spiritual or secular, but not both. This is the wrong direction. A different compass is required to find this whale. Dreyfus and Kelly use a different character to understand the concept of joy, however. Ishmael from Moby Dick is a spiritual pilgrim. He adheres to no set philosophies. He's a wanderer, a transparent eye who acts as a foil, as a lens through which the reader views Melville's multicolored rainbow world. There is a strange moment on the ship when Ishmael is helping separate the spermaceti, which is a gooey liquid from a sperm whale used to make wax. Um, He's separating it from the creature's head and has what he calls a divine revelation. He's working on the ship deck with his shipmates until a strange sort of insanity comes over him. It's an earthy feeling, not a heavenly one. Melville writes, Such an abounding, affectionate, friendly, loving feeling did this avocation beget that at last I was continuously squeezing their hands and looking up into their eyes sentimentally, as much as to say, Oh, my dear fellow beings, why should we longer cherish any social acerbities or know the slightest ill humor or envy? Come, let us squeeze hands all around. Nay, let us all squeeze ourselves into each other. Let us squeeze ourselves universally into the very milk of kindness. Would that I could keep squeezing that spermaceti forever. For now, since by many prolonged, repeated experiences, I have perceived that in all cases man must eventually lower or at least shift his conceit of attainable felicity, but not placing it anywhere in the intellect or the fancy, but in the wife, the heart, the bed, the table, the saddle, the fireside, the country. Now that I have perceived all this, I am ready to squeeze case, which is due manual labor, eternally. In thoughts of the visions of the night, I saw long rows of angels in paradise, each with his hands in a jar of spermaceti. I spent three years thinking about this passage, and it's wrecked me. I think what Melville is saying is that there is a higher happiness hiding in plain sight. That higher happiness hides so well because it masquerades as lower, boring, and conventional, and mindlessly sentimental, especially within the confines of this advertorial age. He's offering us an alternative connection to the divine, but not a vertical one, one through other people. I think he's talking about the modest exuberance that comes over us at the table on Thanksgiving, the gratitude we feel for the long, thoughtful conversation with our spouse or close friend, the pleasure of meeting a stranger and listening to his story, the feeling of being at home in the world, 
which immediately runs counter to the evangelical narrative. The magic of connection, fuga, the magic of intimacy, the magic of empathy, these are the higher, better doors to happiness, to home. The irony is that the occasion for joy is so abundant that it doesn't sound immediately enticing. And maybe that's the point. It's not the fireworks display of Dante on the mountaintop. It's not getting the Tesla. It's not a vertical, private proposition. It's a messy, connected one. Joy is the slow-burning embers radiating heat on a cold night from the fireplace. Joy is connection with a divine spark through others. Joy is found in solidarity, communion, family, dependence. When we come back from the high mountain of bliss, everything else grows a little bit dimmer. And every subsequent time, it grows dimmer still. We are naturally accustomed to grow tired of this sort of stimuli. The last beer never tastes as good as the first one. The adrenaline rush isn't the same the 15th time you climb the mountain. The Batman playset finds its way to the back of the closet sooner than anyone would have thought. Adaptation level phenomena sets in, and I wonder that its existence in us is not some sort of message. I don't think that our desires to find happiness through MDMA in the Sahara tin at Coachella, or in owning a Richard Neutra in Bel Air, or in, quote, direct contemplation of God, a la Dante, are misguided. But I think that they're just a little short-sighted. The paradox of happiness is that it's the simplest things, the ones that we imagine to be banal and boring that are actually enriching, actually the most good. Happiness depends more on the possession of a congenial companion than a well-decorated villa, remember? Happiness is only real when shared, says Chris McCandless. Joy is different from bliss in the same way that street magic is different from the magic of connection, intimacy, empathy, creativity, Saying that joy is a higher aim than bliss, even though it requires a lowering of one's, quote, attainable felicity, is really another way to affirm that life itself is its own sacrament, that all life is holy, that there is no distinction between the spirit and the flesh, and there is no need to escape from it. It doesn't even need Melville's angels. If, like Dr. Quantum says, space is the construct that gives the illusion that we are separate from one another, then joy is the shedding of that illusion. We forget and we remember. Life is unified. Joy is the moment of realization that this is indeed true. I know it's some people's dream to make enough money to escape the world of people on a big plot of land, be self-sufficient so you don't need to be dependent on others. I don't think it's a dream that'll make you happy. Our house is a cozy house because the doors are open to our friends and family. As we get settled here, hopefully we will expand to neighbors and new friends. I love my secret lair, and as far as a workspace goes, it's really, really lovely. But what makes it cozy are the reminders, the trinkets and photographs that we are connected to each other. That's what makes a home. Something in your eyes makes me want to lose myself. Makes me want to lose myself In your arms Something in your voice Makes my heart beat fast Hope this feeling lasts The rest of my life 
Where 